And go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 1056. 1056. And if you don't have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible that's up to date, or uh, just old and falling apart, feel free to take one of our Bibles home as our gift to you. But we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, page 1056. Now, uh, first of all, Mackenzie, great to have you back. Welcome back, for sure, from GA. IGSP, and uh, yes, definitely can clap for that. Good to have her back. Also want to thank everybody that uh, helped out with the roof, especially yesterday. We had almost 20 people here between our church and First Baptist Mount Washington, finished up the majority of the, of the, of the roof, got a few odds and ends that need to be shored up, but it uh, uh, looks a whole lot better inside and outside at this point. And so if you haven't had a chance, I encourage you after the service, walk behind the building and just take a look up and you'll be amazed. It looks so much different than it used to, and so uh, really want to uh, also shout out to Josh, who uh, uh, stayed until the very end, him, myself, and Brandon stayed until the very end, we were, we were toast by the end of it. Uh, Josh woke up early, that like really early that morning, and rode his bike like 50 miles before he came and worked on the roof, and so if you were there, you know, I can't, Im- I can't even imagine. Good to be young. <laughs> it's strong. <laughs> so it is good to be in this series on We Are Family, and we're actually going to be concluding this series today. We'll, we'll pick it back up another time later on. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the church as our primary family, but today we're going we're gonna to close it out. And I hope it's been enjoyable for you and, and helpful. I know for me, uh, what I feel like, it's given us more of a sense of an identity as a church, and so I, I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, there, there's several metaphors in the New Testament that describe the church. Uh, you've got the body of Christ, you've got the, the bride of Christ, but more than any other metaphor, the church is described as a family. Almost on every page in the New Testament, you're going to find family language. And so it's significant. And, and back then, we, we need to realize, and we've talked about this, that the, early, early, the concept of family back then meant a whole lot more to them than it does to us. They found their very identity in their family. Every major life decision was not based on what was best for them as an individual, but was what was best for their whole family. And so if, when they called each other brother and sister, man, it meant a whole lot more than what we tend to realize. Now, We've talked about how they shared a deep love for one another. They, they shared really everything together. They, they cared for each other's spiritual well-being and each other's physical well-being. And that love for one another actually poured out into the community. Perry shared last week how they cared very well for their neighbors. And so this was the, the mark of a Christian. Jesus said, look, how you're gonna, people will know that you're my disciples. How? Because of your love for one another. And so as we finish this series, more than anything, I want you to see that the church is a way bigger deal than our culture realizes. How often do you hear people say things like, you know what, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Or they they say things like, you know what, my church is Bernheim Forest or the mountains. Or or they say things like, you know, I I don't really want a whole bunch of hypocrites telling me what to do. Anyhow, I don't, I don't need that. I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. That's all I really need. 
Or they say things like, you know what, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And unfortunately, a lot of these people that say things like this, they've had a bad church experience. That's just the reality of it. And honestly, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, we're a bunch of sinners coming together. We're, we're going we're gonna to be a mess at times. Um, the, the New Testament church was a mess. If, if you hang out at Mercy Hill long enough, you're going to realize we're not perfect. I'm, my, if you hang around my family long enough, you're going to figure out that my family is far from perfect. I'm far from a perfect pastor. But that's family, right? That we love one another in spite of that, in spite of the, the flaws. I mean, we're not flashy. We're not perfect. But man, we're family. And so the early church, as I said before, was far from perfect, but you know what they were passionate about? They were passionate about the purity of the church, which is what we're going to be talking about today, because they understood very well the significance of the church family in God's plan. They, they saw the significance, this is one of their core values. The early church had a number of core values. One of their core values was they had a passion for the purity of the church because they realized the church was supposed to be a display of God's glory. The, 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 the early church recognized that the church was, is God's primary instrument to fulfill his mission to gather his people back to him, to, to reunite, to, to reconcile his people back to him. And so they took this mission very seriously. They went to great lengths to, to fulfill this mission. And they went to great lengths to protect the witness of the church from evil and hypocrisy. I think Jesus set the standard for this. And, and so today's passage is an example of how passionate the early church was about the purity of the church. Let me give you a little context. So Paul is writing this letter to Corinth. And Corinth was a jacked up church. And that's saying it lightly. They had all sorts of, of issues. And, and granted, so Corinth was a city that was kind of like the ancient sin city. It was like ancient Las Vegas, okay? And so immorality was all over the place, and it had infiltrated the church. The church, the church was disjointed. They were fighting with each other about who is the greatest. They, they had made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Even some of them were denying the resurrection. And so today's passage, Paul is encouraging this church to have some tough love with a, a man that's part of their church family who is an obvious sin. In fact, in verse 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. And so in this passage, you're going to feel Paul's passion for the purity of the church. And there's several places I could have gone in the New Testament to to teach about the purity of the church, but I chose this one because more than any of them, it gets to the heart of church discipline, what it is and why a a healthy church is going to do per church discipline. And it's also a reminder why membership ought to be meaningful to us as a church. And so I want to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to walk through this passage together. Father, uh, I echo Josh's prayer and pray that our hearts would be humble as we 
look into this passage and wrestle with the text. I pray that we would hear your words and that your spirit would speak truth, even uncomfortable truth to us in a way that would help us see your glory and be in awe of who, who you are and that you would instill in us a passion for the purity of your bride, for your glory, not ours. Help me speak truth in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So evidently, a member of their church was sleeping with his stepmom. And again, Corinth was the Las Vegas of ancient, the ancient world. In fact, sexual immorality was rampant there. In the middle of Corinth was this temple to Artemis, or Aphrodite. She was the goddess of sensual love and pleasure. And they say that there was around a thousand prostitutes at the temple. And so people came from all over the, 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 the area to, to Corinth to commit sin. And yet, even in that context, within this church, there's a guy that's doing something that even they, even the pagans, would not approve of. I mean, you don't sleep with your stepmother. This is like when the church today tolerates child abuse. Yet this church seemed to be proud that this man was part of their church family. Look at verse 2. Paul says, And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Later on in verse 6, Paul mentions that they were actually boasting about this. Like, look, look how gracious we are. Look how we accept anybody. We love you no matter what you do. But Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Grace, yes, we should accept people, no matter what they look like or or, or, or where they come from. But Paul is saying, look, grace is not simply that God puts up with sin. Grace is that God was willing to die for sin, that he forgives sin, and that he changes sinners. God doesn't close his eye to sin. Paul is saying it, it's actually arrogant for the church to just overlook this sin. You should mourn over the sin. Paul goes on, verse 3, For though absent in the body, I am present in the Spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And so when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, and so he's saying, look, you have authority. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, listen to this, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So church discipline, formal church discipline like this, is never to be done lightly. Formal church discipline is never to be the sole decision of the elders. It's a, it's a church decision. Jesus, before the church even was started, before the church existed, Jesus lays out 
a very specific process to follow when it comes to formal church discipline. And in fact, it starts with informal church discipline. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so formal church discipline is a church's decision to remove somebody from membership and lovingly, let me emphasize that, lovingly hand them over to Satan. And so in other words, let them be to you as a Gentile so that they might suffer for a season in hopes that they would repent and turn back to God and be saved on the day of the Lord. And so this is never to be done lightly. It's always to be done in love. I can't emphasize that enough. That church discipline always has the goal of love. It, it is always motivated by, gov- by love and it has the goal of a person's eternal salvation. And so when the church fails to exercise this, this authority or when they exercise it too late, the whole church is affected or infected. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, if you're younger, you may not even know what leaven is. Okay? So leaven is yeast. Does anybody still make their own like homemade bread every once in a while? Okay, does anybody own a bread maker? couple of people. Okay, I remember when Kim and I were, were getting married, that was like the big rave like 20 years ago. Everybody had to have a, put it on your, your registry when we were getting married, and so we had a bread maker for a season, and man, I wish we would never got rid of it. It smelled amazing, right? So anyhow, if you, if you don't know how bread is made, you simply, it, it, it's not a hard process. You take, it's flour and water and sugar and then whatever flavors you want to put it in, into, it, and you mix it all together until it's a lump, and then you add just a, like a little bit of yeast and so here's a little science lesson for you. Um, so yeast is a, actually a, um, uh, it's a living organism, right? And so it's a, it's a fungus, and uh, it lays dormant until it is put in contact with warm water. And so when it's reactivated, it's hungry, okay? And so yeast wants to eat, and it starts eating on the sugar, and if something eats, it's also going to secrete. And so it, it has two byproducts of the digestive uh, process or called fermentation. And those two byproducts, one of them is uh, actually ethanol, which is what we, uh, we make beer and wine out of. And so young people, if you want to drink, uh, essentially what you're drinking is uh, yeast urine. And so that's why you, when you go... <laughs> You go into a restroom and it smells a little bit like beer. There's a reason for that. But <laughs> um, the, the other byproduct, though, is uh, CO2. Okay, so the yeast gets gassy and produce, produces CO2. And so you, you don't have to worry, though, like when you're eating bread, you're not going to get drunk because the, the ethyl alcohol gets, it, it disappears when it's heated and, and it's cooked out of it. But the CO2 
uh, creates ga or gas and it spreads through the rest of the, the lump and that's what makes the bread rise, right? And it infects the whole bread. And so a little leaven leavens the whole lump is what Paul says. Paul is saying that when the church allows blatant sinful behavior to remain in its midst, it infects the whole congregation. Now, I'm not saying that you can catch sin like you can catch some cold. But when there's blatant public sin like this, there's a ripple effect that impacts the whole church. For, for instance, with a sin like this, and the church just allows it to remain, it destroys their ability to evangelize. In evangelism, what are we doing? We're calling people to repentance, to turn from their sin and trust and put their faith in Christ. And how can you do that if there's blatant sin that even the world doesn't accept in the midst of the church? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Paul says this in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so Paul here, he, he mentions the Passover feast and the festival of unleavened bread that followed it. And so it helps to know a little bit of the backstory here. In Exodus, you can go back and read about how God freed the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery. And he sends Moses along with ten plagues. The plagues keep getting worse. And the last plague, the tenth plague, was that God would send the angel of death and kill every one of the firstborn in Egypt, except for the Israelites, where he told them to kill a, a lamb without spot as a substitute and put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over their houses. And so after the, the agony of the Egyptians losing their firstborn, the Pharaoh finally says, okay, I'm going to let you go, Israelites. And so God in that moment tells the Israelites, go quickly. Probably because he knows that Pharaoh's going to change his mind. But he says, go quickly. Don't even take the time to gather the yeast and leaven your bread. And so that's where this festival of unleavened bread came from. Later on, God would wants the Israelites to commemorate this moment of him freeing them with this Passover feast and this festival of unleavened bread. And it, during that time, what the Israelites would do is they would, they would remove all of the leavened bread out of their house and all of the yeast out of their house. They would sweep their house and, and they would even make a game with it with the kids. They, they would hide some of the leavened bread, the bread that had raised for their kids to find, like in the cupboards, and uh, the kids would go and find it all, and they'd gather it together, they'd take it out of the house, and they'd burn it. And so Paul is saying here that those celebrations were a foreshadow of Christ. Remember John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus for the first time, says, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples for the last at the Last Supper, he doesn't mention the Passover lamb. Instead, what does he do? He takes the unleavened bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body 
given for you. And he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so in that moment, what Jesus is doing is he's sharing the full meaning of the Passover and the, the Passover feast. And then Paul says, look, the, the festival that comes after that also is symbolic. It's pointing forward. It's not, so the Passover feast and the, the festival of unleavened bread didn't just point backwards to what God did to free them from slavery. It also points forward to what Christ did on the cross to forgive sins and free us from slavery of, to sin. And, and the, the festival of unleavened bread points to Christ purifying us, just like they purified their house from all the leaven Christ purifies us and washes the sins away. And so Paul is saying, celebrate this. Celebrate that you are a new creation, that, that, that old lump is gone. You are a new lump, that you're a new creation. Isn't it interesting, though? In the midst of this grave conversation, he tells them to celebrate. I mean, it's not like they're having a birthday party here, right? He's just rebuked them harshly and has told them to I want you to hand one of your friends, one of your family members over to Satan. Doesn't seem like it's appropriate to celebrate in that moment, but that's what he, he tells them to do. And I think it's significant. I think it's significant because a church that doesn't know how to celebrate can't do church discipline. Let me say that again. A church that doesn't celebrate can't effectively do church discipline. Again, the church is supposed to be a reflection of the glory of God. When we come to gather together and we worship what Christ has done and we, we celebrate who God is, that should be a taste of heaven. So that when people come in, they, they see that and they want that. And so when somebody is placed under church discipline and they're lovingly handed over to Satan, they, they come to hopefully realize, I don't want to miss out on that for all eternity. And so a church that is dead, that has no joy, that, has no, that is not celebrating what Christ has done and who God is, that's a church that's easy to leave. But a church family that reflects the loving Father and celebrates Christ joyfully is a church that prodigals will come running back to. And when they do, the celebration gets even bigger. Luke chapter 15, right? And so let's be a celebrating church. Paul goes on in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindle, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so the lesson here is that church discipline is for only those people that are members 
of the church. We're to judge those inside the church, not those that are outside. Paul makes it clear that, look, if we're not called to stop associating with sinners. Okay, to do that, you'd have to literally get into a spaceship and fly off the earth because it, it's not going to happen. Jesus hung out with sinners. In fact, he did it all the time to the point where he was accused of being a drunkard himself. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, in his book on church discipline, he explains this passage really well, I think. He says, Paul calls on the Corinthian church members to protect the gospel by no longer identifying themselves with the man committing a sin that is even that even non-Christians would question. They are the people in the city of Corinth who publicly assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus by the authority of Christ's charter, and therefore they are responsible on Jesus' behalf to ensure that this man is not allowed to publicly identify himself with Jesus. And so Paul is not speaking about someone who slips up. Uh, he's not speaking about somebody who lapses into these sins. He's talking about somebody who their identity is actually marked by one of these sinful behaviors. And everybody sees it. Paul's not talking about a Christian who gets drunk and repents. He's not talking about a, a Christian who is struggling with an addiction and working through a process to try to recover. He's talking about somebody who's intimately known as a brother or sister in Christ. And again, remember that meant a whole lot more to them than it does mean to us. And they would count themselves as a brother. So they, they claim to be a Christian. They're connected to a church family, but their behavior now clearly identifies them as an unbeliever. And so this is not talking about like a nominal Christian that's not a member of a church and just kind of pops in every once in a while. It's talking about somebody who has been part of a church family, has been part of the membership and considers themselves that, but has blatant, unrepentant sin in their heart. So I, I recognize this is not the most comfortable passage to preach on. If you're, like if this is your first time here, this is baptism by fire, Right? And I'm pretty sure nobody woke up this morning <laughs> and said, man, I hope Nate preaches on church discipline and the purity of the church. But I hope you realize how important it is for our church family to, to protect the purity of the church, to have a passion for the purity of the church. Ultimately, it's about the glory of God. We've been called We've been designed by God. The church has been designed by God to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. So that's why the early church, and that's why we ought to be passionate about protecting the purity of the church. And also church discipline is also about loving one another. It's about loving one another enough when we see a family member heading towards a cliff to say, look, if you keep going down that path, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to destruction. And so th for those of 
you who uh, are, are married, um, guys, remember back to when you were courting your wife. Um, you probably did some crazy things to win her love, right? I, I think of in the, in the Old Testament, you've got Jacob who's like worked for seven years to, to be able to marry Rachel. Uh, but for him, he says it felt like just a few days because how much he loved her. Long years, even long distances are irrelevant for a guy who is in love and delights in a woman. I remember the, the summer before Cam and I got engaged, we, she went on a, a mission trip for the whole summer to Colorado, and I went up to Michigan to be a, a camp counselor. And uh, this is before cell phones, and so our primary means of communication was snail mail, like writing with, by hand <laughs> and, and sending letters back and forth. So yeah, I'm old. But uh, uh, there, there came a point where I couldn't stand it any, any longer, and so I had one week off that whole summer. And even though I was exhausted, what did I do? I bought a plane ticket and flew to Colorado to be able to see Cameron because that's what people do when they're delighting in somebody else. Well, that, uh, that example pales in comparison to the infinitely grander scale. Think about Jesus. Made an incomparable journey from heaven to earth to pursue the one that he delighted in. Left the, the glories of heaven. Worked for not just seven years, but over 30 years. Suffering, rejection, and ultimately the cross because he loved the church. And this is what Paul says. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. Christ had a passion for the purity of the church. In fact, his passion went so far that he was willing to die for it. I pray that that same passion would be in us. And so, application, here it is. Three practical ways that I think we can move in the direction of having more of a passion for the purity of the church. Number one, care for one another's souls enough to speak the truth in love. Care for one another's souls enough to speak the truth in love. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so this is not just hammering people over the head with the Bible. This is building relationships with people enough that they trust you and you trust them that you can speak truth and love to them and they know that you're loving them. The vast majority of church discipline should be informal, brother to brother sister to sister, so that it doesn't have to get to the formal point. So seek to build relationships like that. Give permission to your one-to-one -to, -one to be able to speak truth and to, to confront you gently when necessary. 
So number, number one, care for one another's souls enough to speak the truth in love. Number two, passionately pursue personal holiness. That's a mouthful. Passionately pursue personal holiness. Don't let up on dealing with your own idols. We talked about idols in, in cross-training today. Often we, we'll deal with behaviors, but that doesn't get to the source. I um, uh, shared a story uh, this morning. Dave shared a story this morning, actually from another pastor that talked about how they had gone to, together to clean up a, a river, had all sorts of plastic and debris and just trash in the river, and, and they got it cleaned up. But they, they, Later on, they went back to the river, and it was filled with trash again. It's because they hadn't dealt with the source. If you don't deal with the idols that are in your heart, dealing with the behavior is not going to help a whole lot. I'm, I'm really excited. In September, we're actually going to be spending a whole sermon series on soul care. And so a lot of that you're going to find out is dealing with the idols that are in your hearts. And so passionately pursuing holiness, it never stops. It never lets up. You can't you can't get lax with it either. It's like pushing a rock or a boulder up a hill. It's like paddling a canoe upriver because as soon as you stop working on your own purity, as soon as you stop paddling, as, as soon as you stop pushing, the, the stream is going to just carry you away because we live in a broken world. And so you create, pursue those relationships again that are, are going to encourage you to keep going when you get tired, and then also begin to create, create habits that are going to foster that holiness. Take baby steps, maybe for you, that means this week, maybe you make a commitment, you write this commitment down, you put it on a mirror and say, look, I'm going to set my alarm 15 minutes early, I'm going to read the scriptures, and I'm going to pray before I do anything else in the morning. And you commit to doing that for the next 30 days. But take a baby step Create those habits that are going to grow holiness in your heart. And then finally, number three, submit yourself to the loving authority of the local church. Submit yourself to the loving authority of the local church. And, and so what I mean by that is if, and this is going to step on some toes, if you've been dating the church for a while and you've yet to become a member, if you've not fully committed to membership, I would encourage you to consider that. Uh, let me give you five reasons why. Very quickly, and we'll end on this. Number one, for your own assurance. Uh, being accepted into, a, into membership uh, it gives you affirmation and it reinforces confidence that your faith is real, that you're not just making up your own private self-made religion. Okay, it's a, it's a church body affirming that they agree with your testimony. They believe that you're a Christian. They believe that, that Christ's spirit is in you and that you, you are saved and that you're going to spend eternity with us. And so for your own assurance, number two, for the good of others, true love is not only manifested in affections and actions, but also in allegiance. Joining says I'm fully committed. Joining says, look, it says to everybody here that I'm committed to you. You are my family. I'm all in. Number three, for your own good. When you are fully committed to others, they're going to be more committed to you. And, and uh, speaking from the leadership position, uh, it's hugely helped. I, I feel 
much more responsible for those who are members of the church. Because that's who I know, that, that's the, who the Bible says that I'm going to be held accountable to. Not, I'm not accountable to all Christians all over the place. I'm accountable to those who are members of our church family. So do it for your own good. Number four, do it for the, the good of unbelievers. Lone Ranger Christians don't make the best witnesses for Christ. Rather, someone who is well-connected, who is well-committed to a church family is best prepared to draw others to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. The more you co- are committed to your church family, the, more, or the better witness you will be to others. And then finally, your own perseverance. Uh, when you sign the church covenant, the church is committing to helping you persevere in the faith, to encourage you when you get weak, to, to be there when things are not going well for you. Uh, the best way you can stay faithful to Christ is to be around a committed church family that's committed to you. And so uh, I want to conclude this with, uh, and this may be a little bit strange, but do we have my phone number that you can put up there? Okay, so if you are, if you've been coming to Mercy Hill for a while and you recognize that, okay, it's time for, for us to, to be fully committed, uh, you can either talk to me personally today or if there's not time for that or I'm surrounded by other people and you just can't get to me or uh, it's just easier for you to text me. Uh, text, so my phone number is going to, yeah, there's my, there's my phone number. Ah, nice. Appreciate that. <laughs> but um, you can text me uh, today and just let me know that, hey, look, we need to be a part of the church family. And I hope my phone just starts, like, going crazy right now. <laughs> Blow up my phone. Um, but I will, I will contact you, and we will set up a time to talk. And if there are barriers that are, are preventing you, uh, if there are reasons why, Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Let's, uh, let's, um, let's work through those, those things. And maybe Mercy Hill is not the right fit for you. Uh, whether, you're, whether you join Mercy Hill or whether you join another church family, I, I think it's so important for the health of your, for your spiritual health and for the kingdom that, that you would be committed as a member of a church family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 